Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring radio astronomy and looking at the role of amateurs in its birth and those who continue in the amateur pursuit. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that I have something of a love for radio astronomy. So when Dr Emma Chapman explored the role of the amateur in her feature for Physics World magazine, I was only too happy to make this the first Physics World podcast of 2024 all about radio astronomy. I'm Dr Emma Chapman. I'm an astronomer, astrophysicist, uh, lecturer at University of Nottingham. Uh, where I also lead the outreach for the department as well. Um, very passionate about that. And it's also why I write popular science books. Oh, like what? Um, oh, yes. Well, if you're interested. <laughs> um, yes, my um, the book that's out at the minute is called First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time, which is about my personal research area, which is uh, looking at the very first stars and black holes to be born in our universe about, gosh, 13 and a half billion years ago. Um, yes, and I'm in the... Final, final stages of writing the second one at the minute with a deadline in two weeks. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us what that one's about? Yeah, that, well, that one is very relevant. That one is about um, the whole of radio astronomy. It's a look at the history and present and future of radio astronomy as a field. Uh, so that, And that's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to write this article was because in, in researching that book, I just came across so many little stories about the so-called amateur the field of radio astronomy was started by amateur astronomers um, and very much driven by them uh, in order to get it off the field because the scientific establishment just wasn't interested. As we'll hear, one of the key players in the birth of radio astronomy was Bernard Lovell. And the Lovell telescope, along with Carl Sagan's contact, the novel and the film starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, was one of the two things that really inspired me and got me interested in radio astronomy. I grew up in Manchester, in the north of England, and in the countryside just south of it is the Lovell Telescope. It sits at um, uh, a location called Jodrell Bank, and it's where radio astronomy in the UK really began, thanks to Bernard Lovell. It's a approximately, you've, oh, you've caught me out here exactly how, how big it is now, I think it's uh, 300 feet. I think it's 300 feet diameter dish, radio dish, that, um, that can swivel and point at different areas in the sky. And so, as, as you've just said, anybody living in, within a reasonable distance of it knows this dish because it is part of the landscape. And I spoke to somebody, gosh, probably a year ago now, actually, who said that they would go on their school bus every single day um, in, the, in the Cheshire countryside and they could tell the weather by looking out the window at the dish, because if it was pointing straight upwards, it meant it was really windy and they'd had to what's called stow it. Um, because these are huge dishes and as much as they're made of materials which lets wind through, if it's too high, <laughs> it can put a lot of stress on the structure, especially a structure that is now, uh, what, going on for 60 years old. What is it that drew you to radio astronomy as a discipline? Um, oh gosh, I was forced into it, kicking and screaming. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I, 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 my whole career is an accident. Uh, I, became, I became an astronomer by accident. Uh, I was originally on the pathway to be an Egyptologist. Um, I really wanted to be a historian and uncover the, these kind of histories and decode different pasts. And then I came across a book which led me into uh, physics because it describes special relativity and the fact that you could travel in time, like there was nothing that said you couldn't. Blew my mind. 
went to university and quite by accident did a cosmology course which then blew my mind again because it started telling me that it, it accessed that part of me that wanted to um look back in time and decode ancient things just like with egypt but this was like oh this is 14 billion years ago that's even more awesome so I ended up doing a PhD in astrophysics and actually I'd wanted to do something, I'd, I would say fairly standard as in kind of optical, I don't know, I didn't even have an idea, but I just thought I'd be using the Hubble <laughs> or going to a mountain in, in Hawaii. And actually my supervisor was like, no, you're going to be a radio astronomer and you're going to be going to the fields of the Netherlands in the rain. And I was really disappointed <laughs> for, for really quite a long time. Um, and then I fell in love with it utterly. And I think it is because of what radio astronomy is able to do, despite its perhaps humble appearance. So yes, most of our astronomy is done on Earth. I call it kind of down to earth astronomy, if you'll allow that kind of weak <laughs> pun. Um, and it's because we do keep our feet on the ground very much. We're able to do a lot of radio astronomy from Earth because the, there's a window in the atmosphere on the electromagnetic spectrum, which lets radio waves through. So whereas James Webb has to go up into out of the atmosphere, so do the big UV and X-ray missions. Um, so does the Hubble even. But radio, we can we can save our money <laughs> and we can we can stay on Earth. And more than that, because we're using really long wavelengths, it means that we can be a lot less precious about how smooth our collecting surfaces are so whereas james webb you're looking at polished gold to within you know a fraction of a hair's width we just stick antennas in a field meters apart and as far as the radio waves concerned it's still a shiny dish so we can do everything on the cheap it's brilliant and the fact that we can do that and look to the dawn of time and see the signals of the very first black holes forming just it once I got my head round what we could do there was absolutely no going back for me and I, now I'm a total nerd for the technology to the point where anywhere I travel in the world I look up the nearest radio dish and make a point of visiting it so I visited some crazy places <laughs> but it's been a lot of fun. Does that mean that Bernard Lovell didn't need to make such a big dish he could have just put some antennas in the field? This is a very interesting point um at the time you needed that big dish um, because even though these antennas, like it looks quite simple, just putting them in a field. So for example, the square kilometre array, which I'm involved in building in Western Australia, that's 130,000 antennas about my height. They really do look like the antennas you used to put on your roof to get the TV, but two metres high. Um, that, the technology is just wire and wood, but the cables which join all of those up and the computational power that's needed to combine all of those signals we've only just reached that in terms of, of, of technology um, in fact we're not even there yet we're working with nvidia to create cooling chips which mean that the computers don't blow up we're working with fiber optic cables that 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 because this is the fastest data rate ever using this telescope so bernard lovell in the 1960s post-war 1950s even it didn't have that capacity and so creating a large dish um where you're collecting a lot of radio waves and focusing them to a, like a single receiver um that was the standard way to go at that time 
Uh, and it's not the biggest dish. The biggest dish is in Puerto Rico, and that's 300 meters across, so 0.3 kilometers, and that's sat in the jungle of Puerto Rico, and and that that is that's quite a sight to see. I have been there. <laughs> yes. So I went on a bit of a pilgrimage because I went, unfortunately, after it had collapsed. Um, so there were the what the idea is, is this massive dish collects radio waves from the sky as it goes above, as the Earth rotates. Um, and it focuses it onto this huge kind of receiver antenna, if you will, uh, that's hanging over the top of it. Um, that fell <laughs> a few years ago and ripped out a good half of the dish to the point where it's irreparable um absolutely gut-wrenching and i went there to interview some people and they were still grieving very much post-traumatic stress it was really really very difficult to visit but for me i visited because nothing on earth has ever been built like that it and the things that that dish has done it, it lies there inert in a jungle in puerto rico and yet it sent the first ever message we sent on purpose to extraterrestrial intelligence. It discovered ice on Mercury. It mapped the surface of Venus before any of the space missions had using radar. <laughs> it, it protected our Earth from incoming asteroids, which we've lost half of our capability for now, which not enough people talk about, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's an interesting one. I, I, I mean, yeah, Arecibo, right? It's uh... Arecibo, I should mention. Yes, it's called Arece the Arecibo Observatory and it's called the 305 metre dish originally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in contact, isn't it? The, uh, it is. The yeah, so yeah. I stayed in the uh, the cabin that, that Jodie Foster. <laughs> oh, amazing. I know. It was amazing. Oh, it was, it was, yeah, it was a dream absolute dream trip for me and do you know what i didn't even need to be the conference at the conference that was held there i was like let's find the most tenuous link i can yeah sure i'll, I'll go to that conference i'll <laughs> learn about that that's fine and i cleared out the gift shop it was unbelievable yeah. like, i i have arecibo head to toe <laughs> at home amazing amazing sounds wonderful um so um i the, the square kilometer array right I, i've been hearing about that for some time i think i've Heard about it whilst at uh, Blue Dot Festival. First mm -hmm. time I heard about it, I think. Um, is that going to inspire people the same way? I think it will. I think there is excitement already brewing. I've noticed the headlines in the papers. We've been making the front page when there's been, um, for example, Meerkat, which is what's called a pathfinder, which kind of means like a test array where we're testing our technology for square kilometre array. That's been up and working for a few years in South Africa now, and it's created maps of the Milky Way in the radio. That made the front page of a lot of newspapers. So that was, that was very validating to see. And I think it's because we are now at the point where we're producing images on par kind of with the optical, what your eyes are used to decoding. So it's very important for me to, to, to make people understand that it's not that radio astronomy is less um, evolved, that it's, it's worse than using optical. It's that we are not used to um, understanding the way that radio waves are, are processed. Our eyes are evolved to look at optical and every single animal on Earth, none of them are able to see in radio wavelengths. So we have had to create this technology 
that's taken time. <laughs> but now we're able to produce images that look very much like we might imagine in the optical. And that just makes it easier for our heads to go, wow. But in the 1960s, you know, we were discovering the first pulsars, these first spinning stars by um, Jocelyn Bell Burnell. We were discovering that in radio data. And a lot of things that we've done in optical were done in radio first. It's just that it didn't capture the imagination in the same way because it was a line on a piece of graph paper that people had learned how to decode. Uh, so, for example, black holes, you know, that was uh, we'd, we'd worked out where black holes were and what, how big they were all in radio data far. And we imaged one in the radio data a few years ago, for example. So the square kilometre array. Yes, I think once uh, we get first light in approximately 2028, that will be producing such a level of science that it will rival the James Webb Space Telescope. And my hope is that when people think telescope, they don't just think classic Galileo, they also think dish or antenna. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I know I do. So, but that's that's the thing, right? Because you said you say that it was, you know, there's this line on the paper. There's in contact, let's go back to that. Um, they actually listen to it, right? And that's probably not something that happens in real life, is it? I don't know. It is, yeah. So especially especially in the amateur community, uh, so the first ever extraterrestrial, and that, by that I don't mean aliens, I just mean um, from the universe, extraterrestrial radio waves were heard by somebody called Carl Jansky um, in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And it's because he had his headphones on listening to transit, the first transatlantic phone calls and he heard a hiss. And those hit, that hiss was actually the hiss of the radio waves from the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, Sagittarius A. This is what kick-started st kick radio astronomy in the entire world, was him going, what's that hiss? And he built this big antenna on, on wheels that he'd salvaged from Ford Model T cars during the Great Depression and spun it round, yeah, to work out where it was coming from and eventually worked out it was coming from the Sagittarius constellation. And it took many decades, actually, for people to work out it was a black hole. But, um, yeah, that's sonification. So we're used on Earth to using radio waves to transmit information, whether you're listening to the archers or whether you're using a walkie-talkie or whether you're using Wi-Fi. We use radio waves to encapsulate information. And then we have to trans, um, transform those into something that a human can understand, now, whether that's typed text or an image or audio. And so we can listen to anything, really. We just have to work out that translation. And people, especially in the amateur community, they use their, um, their antennas, for example, to study meteors. You can hear meteors ping. And so the, the labs that I've been to, for example, I'm actually sat in, in Lincoln at the minute, and Lincoln Amateur Astronomy Society, which I visited last year, I went in and it was just going ping, ping. Ping, ping. And I asked them what it was, and they were like, oh, it's just some, it's just some meteors. I'm sorry, what? And, and for example, another one I visited in, I want to say Sherwood, I think it was Sherwood Astronomical Society. Um, yeah, they, they were listening to Jupiter and Saturn, so you can hear the aurora. So it's aurorae, I'm not sure. The, the, um, the, the northern and southern lights that you, you, you see on Earth those um, on Jupiter and Saturn 
because the atmospheres are different, they don't produce this green light, this green wavelength of light, they create a lot of radio light. And so you can you can hear <laughs> and it sounds awful. It sounds really like um do you know what a theremin is? Yes. Okay, so it sounds like <laughs> like a screechy theremin. Um, it's not pleasant to listen to, but I, I find sonification a very interesting way of understanding radio data. And here is the sound of Jupiter's aurora as recorded by NASA's Juno space probe in orbit around the gas giant. Instruments on board Juno collected the radio data and it's been transposed to the audible frequencies. With the absence of the wonderful imagery that optical astronomy brings, radio astronomers are reliant on being inspired by lines on a graph, on a readout, or, on those rare occasions, sounds like this. I think it's that connection um, that, you can, that you can get and, and the privilege of knowing that you're one of the only organisms ever to have heard that you know no animal has been just happily listening to jupiter for the last few decades we have had to create this interface with our universe and the fact that you can do that for 200 pounds which is what my solar flare array cost at home that i just have it's just a what would you say i'd say 40 centimeters maybe um uh, on each side and it's like a diamond uh, of copper wire and some wood with a bit few electronics in and you can tune in to a beacon in Germany which basically the radio signal from that beacon changes if a solar flare is coming through the atmosphere and so you can see the solar flares come in and the fact that I can do that for 200 pounds just having it in the background in my home office running 24 hours a day because we're radio astronomers we don't care about the sun particularly it's actually quite quiet <laughs> so we can we can observe in all weather inside and I still have a good night's sleep which is another thing which really drew me to radio astronomy I'm not a I'm not I'm not a late night person I've never had to observe in the night ever so that's brilliant <laughs> it might seem strange to talk about people like Bernard Lovell as amateurs but in the field of radio astronomy they were Jansky was an engineer and Bernard Lovell of course was a physicist but I wondered how we'd gone from essentially these enthusiasts in fields to a full-blown astronomy discipline. War, <laughs> as with a lot of things, uh, unfortunately, uh, war creates uh, a lot of scientific progress um, because people are forced to quickly come up with solutions and explore options. And when it came to radio astronomy, people got very interested after World War II because there was a lot of radar dishes, which is just the same. Radar is just a way of sending and then receiving radio waves, whereas if you just set it to listen, it's a radio telescope. So a lot of physicists around the world that had heard similar hisses and pings and fizzes from the sun. So the sun, for example, even though it's mostly quiet, uh, there was two days during the Second World War where it sent out such a large flare that the entire home front radar defence network was taken down. 
So this is was very important for people to go, wait, we should understand what just happened. And so suddenly the funding started coming in. And people like Bernard Lovell, they, they, they literally salvaged radar dishes from skips and built their own um, rigs at home. And then when the Cold War progressed and Sputnik, for example, was launched, um, the Lovell telescope was in huge financial trouble, so much so that um, Bernard Lovell had been hauled up in front of um, Parliament and had somebody visit his home, basically telling him he was going to be going to prison soon for um, misusing funds, public funds. He hadn't, but he was just very over budget. <laughs> but what astronomy mission isn't? Um, but but uh, Sputnik got launched and suddenly Lovell was the only person in the world that could trace it, only person in the Western world, sorry, that could trace this, this new, at the time, threat. Right, and then suddenly they were like, oh, okay, no, here's all of the money. And it's the same with Arecibo, actually. Uh, that shouldn't have been built. Um, that was that was built partly to look at the trails of nuclear warheads in the atmosphere because they create ionizing particles and radio radiation. Um, and yeah, that's that's how they got the funding. But it's it's yeah. <laughs> oh, right. This is slightly off topic, but I walk around CERN. Oh, now I'm jealous. I've never been there. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's amazing. Let go. I know. But, you know, it, it looks to me like that has just been built because we want to know stuff, right? There's just miles or kilometres of cabling and tunnels and, you know, particle accelerators because we, we want to know stuff. It's not war that's caused that, right? Are we are we moving into a better world? I mean, yes, I think that funding now is easier to come by for what we call blue sky research. Um, Science, especially astronomy, were historically hobbies for the very rich, the very well off. And now, I mean, it's not that way at all. It's it's that we have to apply for grants and get the funding. Um, There's still a lot of oversight from from government as there as there should be because it's public funds but it does mean that for example um the search for extraterrestrial intelligence seti that's suffered hugely because u.s congress ditched it they saw it as a way to score political points and said this is a ridiculous waste of taxpayers money and actually banned nasa from funding anything uh, to do with 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 seti during i think it was the 80s and 90s um for a very long time and that 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 field has really suffered um because of that that political <laughs> uh oversight but yes i think i think it's there's a lot more respect in the public sphere i think for just wanting to know so for curiosity for the sake of it everybody loves james webb space telescope um the space telescope so everybody loves the images that come from that people can't get enough of them you've talked about going to these different amateur astronomy groups are you finding amateur radio astronomers in these groups today yes so i this came from me finding out about uh, jansky and then his successor jansky was was employed by bell labs at the time and so wasn't allowed to take this hiss from the headphones into a radio astronomy profession however there was a an amateur astronomer called Grote Reber or Reber I've never been quite sure of the pronunciation actually and he um he actually gave up his job and built up built the first amateur and professional radio dish in his mother's back garden uh, and mapped the whole Milky Way and he was the only radio astronomer in the world for 10 years and he was an amateur 
And when I was reading and uh, researching about him, I was thinking, gosh, I wonder if there's any amateurs around today in radio astronomy. Because, again, I've never come across any. Uh, but they, yeah, it's not actually that hard. So the British Amateur Astronomy has a radio astronomy group. And then suddenly you see these little people pop out of the <laughs> woodwork. And, and so I have visited several of these places. And it's quite amusing because they'll have the central little building, a tiny little building with the actual dome and where they have their, their sem seminars. And then invariably, the radio astronomy group is in a separate building, a shack normally, <laughs> a shed if they're lucky. Um, and there's just antennas on every single roof. Uh, and, and they're a very different species of amateur astronomy because it's a totally different language. And what I find is whereas amateur astronomers are made of anybody of any profession and background that has an interest in astronomy, the radio astronomers tend to have a very different background. They tend to be electrical engineers, radio engineers, radar technicians who have retired and decided to take on a new challenge and instead of looking on earth they've decided oh i wonder if we can look up and so they know the technology a lot more and so it's, it's a really interesting set of society <laughs> um yeah and, and obviously they all have their seminars together and i think that that kind of cross-pollination is very very important and you can see that through the literature the first time somebody saw jupiter in the radio um, radio waves, they were pointing at, at Jupiter, a very bright star looking thing in the sky and going, oh, what's that? And it was somebody in optical astronomy that was going, oh, that's Jupiter. <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, right, that's what we just found. <laughs> uh, and same with Bernard Lovell. Yeah, he didn't know what meteors looked like, like particularly or sounded like. And so he had an amateur astronomer come over and, and help him look for meteors while he was trying to find them in the radio. These amateur radio astronomers, are they contributing to, to science today? Not in a significant number. Uh, there is the odd paper which, for example, will have discovered uh, a pulsar. Believe it or not, there are amateur astronomers that are able to, to discover pulsars. Um, and that, that's just incredible. Uh, technologically, I can't really explain how. <laughs> how um, I could not do that. So it's, it's, it's really incredible that people are able to do that. Um, yeah, so there's, there has been, there was somebody a couple of years ago that, that, that contributed to a paper, an amateur astronomer and his son, actually, um, his high school son, who asked a question about electromagnetism uh, and his dad answered. And then they were like, oh, I wonder if that could be to do with pulsars that they'd heard about. <laughs> <laughs> they just they, they they contacted a lot of academics around the world and, and one got back to them and um yeah they ended up on a scientific paper because it was a good theory. Uh so there's there's definitely people uh, contributing in that way. But I think the thing that is stopping them having the same profile as say the optical astronomers who can sometimes spot um uh, uh, asteroids, for example, is that the rig you need in order to do anything very high resolution or very far away is is really advanced in terms of the computing um and that set of skills radio astronomy takes such a cross-section of skills even academically that you you have to have whole departments of different people that and i think i talk about this in the article actually is that it, the square kilometer array is very separated into the electrical and like the engineering side and the science side, they have different conferences, they have different groups, 
and there's very little talking between the two which I've, I've always found very interesting <laughs> but it's because there's just too much knowledge needed in too broad an area for one person to have that that all-knowing yeah that all-knowing radio eye that you do you do see some of the old school people the old guard who really just are able to know everything <laughs> yeah. because they built the telescope oh, right so i wonder like because you're talking about these people you know detecting pulsars and having these um antennae on the roof of sheds which sounds absolutely delightful to me as a man of a particular age and um I, it, there's there's also amateurs in other astronomy like I, I think about galaxy zoo right those are amateur astronomers getting involved in essentially data collect not data collection but looking at the data and looking for things in the data but this is more of a skilled set of amateurs isn't it it is yes yeah. so there are on the on the zooniverse which is the larger galaxy zoo uh, world there are radio projects where you can help detect uh, what's called radio frequency interference so uh, the channels that have been knocked out because a tv satellite's gone overhead for example are helping to do that there's there's that there are those kind of projects but yeah these amateurs i went to these groups as a radio astronomer and felt so stupid uh, because they knew way more than me and i would i would be going in and saying oh what's that and they were kind of going um meteor <laughs> like, really basic thing if you switch on a radio telescope you will hear meteors <laughs> but i've never switched one on myself <laughs> you know i've always been using these huge arrays in the netherlands that are switched on by somebody or rather they're on all the time the data is collected by someone else they clean it for me on that level and then i get the data and that's when i start my cleaning and my analysis looking for those signatures of the first stars and first black holes but the process is so large now that no one person is involved in every step of it and so even though i call myself a radio astronomer i kind of stopped calling myself that a lot in fact i don't think i even introduced myself as a radio astronomer on this one um because it feels very false I'm more an astronomer that uses radio telescopes um, because these amateurs are, oh, yeah, I could get them to come and fix everything on the roof of the physics building at Nottingham, I think, whereas I've been staring at it for two years, wondering why it's not working. <laughs> I have a love for radio astronomy. It makes me incredibly happy. And I studied a little bit a couple of, like a long time ago, Jodrell Bank and the University of Manchester did a couple of um sort of postgraduate modules on their website one was um the radio universe and one was seti and i was sitting sitting in my office at the time which was nothing to do with science just looking at the job law bank website going oh wonder what they're doing down there <laughs> rather than work, working and i saw these things and i was like oh, i'll do that one day and it said at the bottom of the page right um uh we this is the last time we're going to do these these modules so i was like okay i've got to do them now right and i um did them kind of in my evenings That's doing cool. you know learning about radio astronomy and it completely changed what i was doing and i became a science communicator oh, really? because of the joy that that gave me right? oh that's amazing yeah it's a lovely thing isn't it so would you recommend people like me who are just sort of looking at radio listening to this and hearing about these groups would you recommend they go and get involved in their groups 
I absolutely do. They're very welcoming. They're very friendly. It's a steep learning curve. However, it's very rewarding. Um, and once you've kind of started to understand a little bit more about the technology, you, you, you have access to this wonderful thing that you can even bring into your own home, as I've said. So, yeah, have a look. Look at the Radio Astronomy Group of the British uh, Amateur Astronomical Association. Um, it's called Bar Rag. <laughs> and um, you'll be able to find a group near you, I'm sure, because I've, I've been amazed at how many there are. Uh, and and just start reading because there are radio astronomy is is in every single field of astronomy it's it's it has contributed to the foundations of most of our missions today um so yeah you you'll find you'll find quite a few good books out there as well if you if you do a bit of looking yeah i've heard one uh, at the start of this podcast actually called first light <laughs> yes i i i do mention radio quite a lot in that so <laughs> The square kilometre away, when it does switch on, what do you hope to see? What do you hope we will hear from? Okay, so I, two things. The the first one that I'm expecting to see is I'm expecting to be able to dive right back into the dark ages of the universe. So being able to see a film, a home movie, images over the, the time of a billion years of these first stars and these first black holes, just beginning to form and the first time they start emitting light so this first like bursts of light in this dark dark universe that's what i'm expecting and hoping to see the the other thing that uh, i think that we might find is a lot more answers as to the origin of life in the universe um it has a very big the ska has a very big research section called the cradle of life which is looking for molecules that are essential to life amongst the stars to try and understand how it came to earth and also uh the square kilometer array will be able to hear the equivalent of an airport radar on a planet 10 light years away so if something out there is emitting a hello message this is the tool that is going to hear that so there's always that tiny little hope <laughs> of something huge that we might actually be able to to make contact if if there is anything out there thank you very much to dr emma chapman for talking to me for this episode of the physics world podcast and i will certainly be listening out to what the square kilometer array has to tell us when it switches on in a few years in the meantime you'll be able to read emma's feature on radio astronomy and those amateurs in the February edition of the Physics World magazine and, around that time, on physicsworld.com. And we'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.